If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're quite used to thinking of the Borgias as you know, sort of byword for evil and kind of depravity. But actually, all those families, and particularly the Medici, were just as evil and depraved as the Borgias. That was Mary Hollingsworth discussing the Medici. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today we're going to be talking about the Medici the influential banking family who wielded huge power in Renaissance Europe and who included several popes and leading political figures. The story of the dynasty has recently been told by the historian and author Mary Hollingsworth in her new book entitled simply The Medici. She spoke to our deputy editor Charlotte Hodgman. Tell me a little bit about the Medici. Who who were they and when did we first see them um, in Florence? Basically, they first appear in 1216 and they are quite ordinary jobbing moneylenders. And they, what is really important about them, significant, is that they take over control of the Republican government of Florence and eventually install themselves as hereditary dukes of a make Florence into a duchy, install themselves as hereditary dukes and rule in Florence until 1737 when they die out rather ignominiously. So it's basically 500 years up and down. They weren't from a very um, rich background originally, were they? No, no, they were rural and poor, not 
completely poverty stricken, but they were part of a great rush of people who moved from the countryside into Florence in the 12th and 13th centuries. And so the, the, Florence, the population of Florence quadrupled over a period of 100 years. People coming in from outside because there were suddenly opportunities to make money in this great big trading, you know, this growing trading country. And anybody who could get there went there, if you see what I mean. So, the, the med, you know, they used every possible way they could to earn money. I mean, I suppose you could argue it's a bit like people rushing to London. You, you've got to have the money to get there. So, they weren't totally poor, but they were not wealthy. And they start out as very, very small-time moneylenders. And they remain pretty small-time moneylenders until well into the 14th century. But they become increasingly respectable. And eventually, they suddenly become very rich because one of their number is a very talented banker. Tell us a little bit about who that was. And that is Giovanni Di Bici. Um, I don't know whether this is really relevant, but he's the person played by Dustin Hoffman in the recent tele- um, Sky television okay. series. <laughs> so it quite, seems quite odd, but he's a kind of, he was a banker. I mean, by this stage, there was a bank called the Medici Bank. And it was an ordinary, not very big bank, but he really understood how to spot rising characters at the papal court. So if you could if you were a banker at the papal court, you potentially could make an enormous amount of money lending, particularly to cardinals and ultimately to the papacy itself. And so the clever person spots the the coming man, spots the people who are moving up the up the scale, who's got the right contacts, who's got, you know, who's who's good in government, which Giovanni Di Bici did. And he backed the person who became uh, Pope. John the 23rd this is he backed the pope that you know the person who was elected pope and literally made his millions i mean just you know the pope needed money and so he lent it mm. vast amounts of you know interest rates and and made a fortune and that was the basis of the medici success story i suppose okay and it was it was his son cosimo um wasn't it who who sort of established the family's political base in, in florence yes exactly so having made all this money um the next step was definitely in, use use it to gain influence and so that's um rather illegally and very deviously that's exactly what cosimo did cosimo himself was also a very astute banker but um possibly more of a politician than his father and he very cleverly built up this group of people, supporters amongst the Florentine voters, and particularly by arranging sort of loans for people, doing favours for people so that these people would owe you a favour in return and therefore would back your policy in government voting, you know, when they were voting in government, that kind of thing, and basically buying, buying votes which wasn't strictly legal. But anyway, that's how he, and then using his own private army to enforce um, the change of power. So who was in power before the, the Medici? Technically, the Florentine government was a republic. It wasn't absolutely democracy, but all males over 30 who were not in arrears with their taxes and who were members of a trade guild, so not aristocracy, not hereditary people, people who actually worked. And those people all had the vote. And so, which is, you know, I mean, 20% of the population, it's, it's not democracy as we think it, but this was certainly unconventional, very unconventional in medieval Europe. And the people that it was a conservative elite dominated by a family called the Albizzi, who were really, I suppose, in charge of Florence before the Medici took over. And that was, they, the Medici engineered a coup, basically, which, in which the Albizzi were kicked out and they took over control of the government. And did, did the Medici, was, was this their plan from the start, do you think, to get this power in, in Florence? 
I would say it was certainly Cosimo's plan from the start. So he must have, when he had watched his father becoming an increasingly successful banker, and that must have been his ambition. But I think it was also his father's ambition. His father definitely got involved quite late in life, got heavily involved in local politics, you know, sort of in in Florence. So um, I think it was that it was their ambition once they realised it was a possibility. Mm. And and how did the the citizens of Florence and, and this this other ruling uh, family how how did they feel about um, sort of being ousted? <laughs> well, they didn't like it. I mean, they were definitely they did not like it at all. And um, but the, the, the interesting thing is, the Florentine citizens initially quite liked Cosimo, um, but quite soon I think they began to chafe a bit because of the control that the um, Medici family or the Medici party, the Medici supporters, exercised over over. Florence. Florentine politics. I mean, obviously, those people, the Medici party people quite enjoyed it because they were part of the, you know, part of the elite. And the elite, obviously, if you were in power, the elite were the people who made money, all sorts of contracts would go your way. If you were in power politically, you could give your, you'd give your friends jobs and, you know, they would give you support and all this kind of thing. I mean, in the book, uh, you know, you, you describe the Medici as, as being quite devious and, and immoral in, in, in the, the way that they, they gain power. What sort of led you to this conclusion? They set up a party, as it were. If you think of a modern political party, there's, a, you know, there's a, the Conservatives or the Labour Party. You know, you, you, you have a, there is a party line and the members of the party follow that line. And that the whole point about the Republican government of Florence was that there weren't parties. Individuals followed their conscience and voted according to their own conscious consciences. And sort of, so for example, you know, there'll be a vote on war or something like that, whether to go to war with a, you know, with, with whoever, then it would be for some people, the idea of, you know, going to war and taking control of a particular local town would be a very good thing to do. And for other people, it would be a very bad thing to do. But it wasn't a party issue. What the Medici did was to establish a party which was against the spirit of the Republic. And they did it um, in a relatively, in, in a devious way by, as I said, I said mentioned earlier, this business of buying votes, which was illegal, and it had to be kept quiet. And also by um, force, uh, Cosimo used his own personal um, army, well, paid retainers, I think you might call them, um, to enforce his decisions. And when he wanted, when things weren't going his way, he would bring in his private army and strengthen it with the threat of the invasion by the Duke of Milan, who was one of his allies. I mean, I think force and deviousness was sort of, yeah, just part of his nature. Would you say that he was the, the most devious of the, of the Medici family over the centuries? I suppose what is the definition of most devious and possibly the most devious, it will be the one that looks least devious, if you see what I mean, but manages to be. And I suppose in that sense, he is. I mean, one of the difficulties is unravelling the reality of Cosimo from the um, uh, myth that's grown up around him. So that isn't always isn't always absolutely um, the easiest thing to do. But I would say very close to being the most devious so what's this myth that's grown up around him then? Well, the myth is he was given the title Pater Patriae, which is the same title that was given to Cicero in the Republic of Ancient Roman Republic, you know, father of the nation and, you know, the benevolent, uh, kind, um, all the decisions he took 
in the interests of his country, not in his personal interests, which is absolutely rubbish. But you know, that that sort of you know the kind of myth that he was his he was first amongst equals, which he wasn't really. He was uh, you know in charge. Um, the, the whole idea that he was loyal to the republic and a, a very you know a, a man who put his country before his own personal interests. That is the myth that has grown up about him, which is patently untrue. I mean, one of the, the most famous and probably well-known events that, that happened is, is the merger of um, Giuliano de' Medici in Florence Cathedral in 1478. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, how that happened and, and, and how the, the Medici family reacted to, to this? The head of the Medici party in Florence by this stage was uh, Cosimo's grandson, who's Lorenzo de' Medici, sometimes called Lorenzo the Magnificent. And um, Lorenzo was quite young when he took over, unlike his father and his grandfather. He wasn't particularly, he wasn't very politically experienced and he certainly was not commercially experienced at all. And um, the Medici Bank had the papal bank account and um, so they were the bankers of the Pope and the new Pope, Sixtus IV, asked the Medici for a loan for a particular reason, which um, Lorenzo didn't want to give him the loan and so refused. And the Pope was absolutely furious and asked for the loan from the Medici's rivals in Rome, who are the Pazzi family. And also shortly after that, um, Sixth IV dropped the Medici from the papal bank account and gave it to the Pazzi uh, family instead. And then all Sixth IV's relations lined up with um, the Pazzi family with the intention of not only killing Lorenzo and Giuliano and therefore removing them from the political um, control in Florence, but also destroying their destroying the Medici Bank in the process. So it was it was a it was a commercial and a political rivalry and supported, as I say, by the Pope and the Pope's relations. And what happened? They they planned this this murder. I mean Lorenzo got away, didn't he? Yes, he got away only only because one of his loyal employees um acted as, as, a, as a shield and stood in front of him and the, the, the loyal employee uh, Francesco Nori was killed and and, and Lorenzo got all, man, managed to get away and escape into the sacristy where and they slammed you know massive great doors slammed shut and he was he he got away and partly due to the very quick thinking on the Medici party in Florence they managed to arrest and they managed to catch nearly all the plotters or all the people who remained in the church and and just fest hung them out of the windows of the palace of the um, government palace uh, that afternoon I mean literally immediately they managed to put down the as it were the uprising mm. did they exact any sort of revenge you know for that for uh, happening in the first place Yes, I mean, first they hung everybody that was related in any in in any format, which included several priests who were part of the sort of papal um, support network, and and so the the Pope excommunicated Lorenzo and uh, declared war on Florence and said, you know, we will I, I, I won't, we're not declare I'm not really declaring war on you, but if you give up Lorenzo to you know to the papal to papal justice, then we will stop. Um, the war, but the Florentine government stuck behind Lorenzo, and and so you know that that attempt failed. But the moment the war came to an end, in in it took two or three years, but it was largely Lorenzo's diplomatic talents that worked it all in in his favour. 
And then, you know, as a result of that, eventually the Medici got the papal bank account back after Sixtus IV had died. And, well, Lorenzo just set up a new series of government committees that ensured he had complete control over, um, there was no, there were no elections at all um, to the ruling bodies, the Senate and the, um, and just, you know, it, everything was done in his name. It was his decisions in the name of the Republic. And so, so after, I mean, say Lorenzo just took over, yeah, more overtly than Cosimo. And, and after that, were there any more challenges to, the, to their power? Oh, yes, plenty more. Um, Lorenzo's son, uh, Lorenzo died very unfortunately in his in his mid-40s of gout. And his son was really, was young and um, not, the, not, not quite the right sort of person, certainly not um, remotely political. And Charles VIII of France invaded Italy with the intention of conquering Naples, to which he had, he had a, um, a dynastic claim. But it meant that his army was going to go right the way down Italy from, you know, from the French border, right the way down to Naples and had to go through Florentine territory and then through Roman territory. And the Florentines were quite nervous about this. Um, but the really unfortunate thing was that Piero rode off on his own account without any discussion with the Republican government, rode off on his own account to treat with the French king and immediately ceded to him all the, the big um, fortresses, um, well, particularly the fortress of Pisa, but on the, the um, on the west coast of Italy. So the French king then took those over and then travelled on south. And and as a result, when Piero came back, having ceded all these territories, the, the Florentine government decided that they would vote to change the constitution and and to exile the Medici. So at that point, the Medici, that's 1494, the Medici were exiled and they didn't get back into Florence until 1512. And the only reason they really got back was because Lorenzo's second son, who was called Giovanni, Giovanni had, um, was, had been made a cardinal just before Lorenzo died. And Giovanni's influence in, at the papal court in Rome was quite important. And this was at a period when the whole of Italy was being completely disrupted by French invasions and then imperial invasions and all this kind of thing. And eventually, um, with papal help, um, the help of Spanish troops, the Medici were reinstated in 1512 in Florence. Um, and then it is Giovanni de Medici who the following year then gets elected as Leo X, the first of the Medici popes. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. But what about the um, what about the Medici women? Um, I mean, there were some very strong characters, uh, female characters in the family as well, weren't there? Yes, there were. And that's some really one of the things that's really charming is the survival of an awful lot of kind of personal letters uh, from quite often from the women. So, for example, Cosimo's wife, Contesina, was somebody that wrote endlessly to her daughters and her daughters-in-law and her granddaughters and, and this sort of thing. So we've got quite a lot of very charming thing, letters from her. But she was clearly a tough, a, a tough and a, a very sort of, what's the right word? I mean, a very caring, good mother, grandmother, but somebody, you, it's, you know, sort of in, nice to see the more domestic side of life, which wasn't exclusively political. And then Lorenzo de' Medici's mother was a, one of the, you know, one of the amazingly sort of creative musical talent, um, quite an interesting person, quite tough, you know. But then Piero Lorenzo's son's wife, Alfonsina Orsini, was possibly the toughest. I mean, she really was tough, <laughs> quite hard. I mean, she was. You know, she did an awful lot to ensure that her son, who's confusingly also called Lorenzo. And of course, Catherine de' Medici um, eventually became queen, queen of France, isn't she? Exactly. Now, Catherine is the daughter of Lorenzo, not Lorenzo the Magnificent, but the, but the Lorenzo who's the son. So she's the great granddaughter of Lorenzo. And she was married to the second son of the King of France in, in a kind of bid by the second Medici Pope, Clement VII, um, and a bid by him just to sort of balance up his reliance. So he was, he politically was heavily reliant on Emperor Charles V and he wanted to, you know, he sought this alliance with France to sort of balance things up. The French King Francis I wasn't massively enthusiastic, but, you know, he said, OK, you, you know, why don't we let, you let your little cousin marry my second son, Henry, um, Duke of Orléans? And that was all fine until the Dauphin died um, very unexpectedly after a, a rather energetic game of tennis. Nobody knows whether he was poisoned or but you know, there's a debate. He might have been poisoned. He might have had a heart attack, whatever. But he was quite young. Anyway, the net result was that Henry, Duke of Orléans, then became the Dauphin. And at which point um, Catherine de' Medici became the Dauphine. And there was a lot of discussion about whether or not they shouldn't annul the marriage because actually she was the daughter of, you know, non, I mean, completely non-aristocratic sort of no background at all. A lot of people at court that the French court wanted her out. And actually she just survived because she was very tough. She kept going. And when her husband died in 1559 in a very unfortunate, um, rather tragic accident in a tournament, the next four kings were all her sons, one after the other. And she they were often quite young. And so she was effectively queen for the rest, you know, for the best part of the second half of the 16th century. Yes, and very, very tough, dealing with France that was split not only politically, but also uh, religiously between Protestants and Catholics. And did, did the women, the Medici women, were they able to exercise political power in Florence? Yeah. Now, I think that's a really interesting thing, something that we absolutely forget. And one of the important points about all women who are married to heads of state or, you know, sort of advisors of heads of state, invariably had a political role to play as well. Because quite often, you know, their husbands would be off fighting and they would be the people that would be left in charge of running the government. I mean, there's even talk that even... 
Pope Alexander VI left his daughter, Lucretia Borgia, in charge of the government while he was off away on, on business. And so women from the upper classes really did have to actually learn statecraft. They were all educated. They didn't do riding and they didn't do jousting and things, you know, sort of things like that. But they definitely learnt foreign languages. They read their history. They read classics, classical studies. They were educated and expected to play a part. Um, I mean, how do they compare to, to other ruling families of the day? I mean, you mentioned the Borgias just a minute ago. Well, they're very like. The reality is that all those families were all very much the same. And we, we're quite used to thinking of the Borgias as you know, the sort of byword for evil and kind of depravity. But actually, all those families, and particularly the Medici, were just as evil and depraved as the Borgias. They all behaved in very much the same way. I mean, once they'd got power, they kept it. And it is both the Borgias and the Medici both acquired their power, both, well, both enhanced their power by having a Pope in the family, because that gave you power on a European scale in a way that just being, I don't know, um, the Duke of Siena wouldn't have done. Um, I mean, we can't talk about the Medici really without talking about their artistic patronage. Um, but it, it, in the book, you sort of say that you think that actually that's been a bit kind of oversold as well. There are lots of pictures that other people think, um, you know, often like to claim are Medici commissions, which isn't always true. And I've tried to point some of those those out in the in the text. But the important, I mean, the Medici were amazing patrons, patrons of some astonishingly brilliant and wonderful works of art. And you know, Florence is 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 proof, living proof of the. You know, it is filled with the most wonderful things that the Medici commissioned. But they did. The point I think I try to make in the book is that Renaissance art is very much about political power and religious beliefs and things like that. It's not really commissioned in quite the same aesthetic context as we would commission something. Think of it like our, if you're a modern bank and you're building, you know, your headquarters. You know, you want it to look. I don't know, in some format, reflect your your um, your wealth and your status. You don't really have, a, nobody has a problem with that. So the Medici are just doing the same as that. When they're commissioning, oh, I don't know, a portrait or an altarpiece or um, something to put on the walls of their houses, they're doing it in the same context. So it was kind of, a, they were demonstrations of their power, really, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And sometimes very overtly. So like Cosimo, the first, the first Duke um, and then Grand Duke of Florence, he decorated his apartments, the five rooms of his apartments. Each room was decorated with scenes from the lives of one of his ancestors, um, or I should say predecessors, because they weren't strictly ancestors. One of the rooms is dedicated to uh, Leo X, who wasn't an ancestor, obviously, and Clement VII. But you know, to, to their sort of, uh, you know, the, the 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 walls are covered with pictures of the great deeds of these of each of these men. That's a very obvious political context. When would you say was the kind of the, the peak of the of the Medici power um, and influence? Oh, definitely under Cosimo, Cosimo the First. Sorry, not old Cosimo, Cosimo the First. And I suppose you could possibly argue that under his son Ferdinando as well. But Cosimo, Cosimo um, inherited in fifteen thirty seven. He inherited a absolutely dilapidated sort of dead. I mean, sort of complete economic chaos, sort of poverty struck. Um, totally disloyal, kind of sad state. And by the time he did reign for quite a long time, but by the time he died, you know, that Florence was one of the leading economies, or Tuscany was one of the leading economies of Europe. He had managed to marry into or marry his family into, um, you know, the top end of the 
social elites of Europe. Um, and he had acquired the title Grand Duke, which included the right to have a royal crown above his coat of arms. I would say that he's the one that really, if if Giovanni di Bici established the uh, you know the, the basic finance, and then Cosimo, old Cosimo, established the sort of political power within the Republic. It's Cosimo, Duke Cosimo, who establishes the Medici as an international dynasty. And 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 then who would you say is responsible for the the decline in their fortunes? His great 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 possibly grandson Cosimo the Third, who um, reigned for far too long. I mean, I don't really know whether that's quite fair. He was one of the most unpleasant people I think I've. He was he was a religious bigot, and he didn't he banned the pleasures of life. He he tried to tax everything he could. He himself, you know, led. A, he, he was he was religious, and he was very obsessively religious. But he didn't want anyone else to have fun at all. So he ban, you know he he would ban. Instead of just banning meat during Lent, which was normal in the Catholic Church, he also banned things like butter and eggs. So, you know, life was even worse. And then he taxed everything to pay for his own, um, pay for his own pleasures. Also, this is, it is, to, should be said, to be fair, um, it was at a time of massive economic trouble in Europe. So Tuscany was not growing economically. It was shrinking uh, pitifully, but he hadn't quite grasped, he hadn't, he didn't have the ability to work out that actually, if you, you know, if you invest in your country, um, you can improve its wealth. He just took. So, you know, he even, he taxed everything. He taxed people's maids, he taxed chauffeurs, he taxed horses, he taxed mules, he taxed literally everything, everything that he could. Uh, and did, did anyone? Did, pe- did people try and kind of rebel against this? I don't think anybody had the energy. They had. He kept his. He kept control of the state through an army of spies and secret informers, and specifically members of the church. He was very, very unpopular. But no, no, no. They, 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 there seemed to be no energy in the country to rebel against him. He even kept his wife under lock and key. I mean, they sound a very colourful dynasty, but not a particularly likable one. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think some of them were more likable than others, but most of the rulers would would. Well, I suppose that is an interesting point. You know, rulers are not often very uh, popular. I mean, the relentless pursuit of power isn't really necessarily going to endear you to somebody who just is only after power. You know, you're probably going to prefer sort of one of the one of the old cardinals who was just fun and Medici cardinals who was just had a lot of fun and played and laughed as opposed to went after power. That was Mary Hollingsworth. The Medici is out now in the UK, published by Head of Zeus. And in the US, it's available for the Kindle. Look out for a review of her book in an upcoming edition of BBC History magazine. Meanwhile, our November issue is currently on sale, which includes articles on Richard III, the gunpowder plot, the Battle of El Alamein, and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good news agents now. And if you're based in the US, I'm pleased to say that BBC History magazine is now on sale in far more stores than it was previously. Look out for us in the larger format stores of Safeway, Publix, Kroger, Albertsons, Major and Harris Teeter. And before we go, don't forget that tickets for our York History Weekend are still on sale. 
It takes place from the 24th to 26th of November and speakers include the likes of Dan Jones, Michael Wood, Helen Castor and Alison Weir. Head to historyweekend.com for more details and to purchase tickets. Well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be talking about King Arthur with Miles Russell. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.